Good morning, and welcome to Grace Church. We are so grateful to have you. It's a, a special occasion that we have for you this morning. Um, before we start, we want to make sure that you are equipped to be able to enjoy this morning as best as possible. And so, there's some pretty important information in the programs that were distributed at the door. If you did not get one as you came in, we'd like to offer you one if you'd like. So, if you didn't get one, if you could just slip up your hand and our ushers can get those to you. There's a few. Thank you very much. There's some pretty important words, but there's also... A gift inside of here that we want to share with you and more to come on that Ooh, little teaser so thank you again for being with us we're going to enjoy some singing together in fact if you'd like to follow along the words for the songs we're singing are in the programs they'll also those of you who are live streaming and for you here as well they'll also be displayed on the screen so let's go ahead and start by singing angels we have heard on high let's stand together and sing angels we have heard on high angels we have heard on high sweetly singing o'er the plains and the mountains in reply echoing their joyous strains Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. 
Mary, Joseph, lend your reign. With us sing our Savior's birth. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Be seated. Good morning. We're glad that you're here. Merry Christmas to you. Well, thanks. Welcome to those who are live streaming, and I know there's uh, quite a few doing that this morning. Uh, Pastor Mike said we do have a couple gifts for you today. Inside your program, you'll see a QRL code. That's that square, funny-looking thing. For those of you that aren't familiar with QRL codes, if you take the camera on your smartphone and point it at that QRL, there'll be a link that pops up on your screen. You can tap that link and download some Christmas music and some of your favorite hymns for free. Those were... Put together for us by a member of our church. His name's Norm Schmidt. He's wonderful on his 12-string classical guitar. And did a lot of work in his own studio. He has his own music studio in his home. And he did all that for us on those, uh, both, both, both Christmas and hymns. But then out in the, uh, in the lobby on the tables... Both of those are in CD form for you to take. Now, if you have a newer car, most newer cars don't have CDs anymore. That's why we provided for you the electronic link. If you have an older car, and I've got one, <laughs> then I am u- utilizing the CDs already, and you're welcome to do that too. So you have both, right? And as you leave this morning, you're welcome to take a little bag of cookies with you. There's plenty, one for each in your family, uh, just as a gift. If you're a guest this morning, we'd love to have you also take your smartphone and just text the word welcome to 440-255-7045. 440-255-7045. And we have another gift for Christmas that we would like to mail to you and tell you a little bit more about Jesus who we love and our church family who we love as well. Okay? So thank you for joining us in person or uh, over the screens uh, this morning. I know there's folks watching from multiple states who have texted me and let me know. So no pressure to any of the actors this morning. Um, we're going to spend a moment here in praying for them. Last night, God moved among us, and I'm sure he'll do the same today as we listen to their stories. Okay? Uh, Let's pray together, and then we'll sing again. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather uh, many souls as one body 
this morning to present our worship to you because you are worthy as our creator and as our savior and as our sustainer. We know, Lord, there's so many that would long to be personally with us this morning that cannot be for various reasons. And I pray, Lord, their hearts would be equally encouraged by the indwelling of your spirit as your children as they worship along with us together over the screens this morning uh, throughout our area. And I pray, Lord, for those who were able to come this morning that their hearts would be open to hear the truth of your word as spoken from these sweet souls this morning. And I pray, Lord, once again, that you would strengthen the folks that will lead us this morning in understanding more about the legacy of grace help from heaven that you give to us that's undeserved through the, through the lives of these ladies. And that the Spirit of God would pull the scales from the eyes of unbelief, and take hearts of stone and turn them to hearts to flesh as they would hear of Christ, maybe in a new and fresh way they've never heard before, as he is the way, the truth, and the life. So guide them, their minds and their hearts and their lips this morning as they teach us and help us understand. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We will sing one more song. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, to worship Christ the Lord. We'll stand once more and sing these verses of O Come All Ye Faithful.
child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Come with me on a journey through everyone's favorite literary genre, a genealogy. Yeah. But don't worry, today is not about unpronounceable name begot unpronounceable name. Instead, we're going to focus on five unique individuals who, through divine grace and mercy, landed in the genealogy of God on earth, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The first promise of the Messiah is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This revelation broadens throughout the Old Testament until we know that he will be born from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, if Jesus is the promised Messiah, then he must fit this description. The New Testament begins in the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus, which proves Jesus' claim to David's throne through Joseph, his legal father. The Gospel of Luke traces his mother's lineage back to King David through David's son, Nathan, and then continues the line back to Adam. Genealogies throughout the ages are almost exclusively paternal in nature. Women simply aren't mentioned. But in the genealogy recorded by Matthew, among the 40 men listed from Abraham to Christ, surprisingly, five women are mentioned by name. Their inclusion and their stories demonstrate God's grace extended to both the Jews and the Gentile, to both the virtuous and the disreputable. These were Eastern women living in ancient times, and yet their stories still resonate today. They showed strength. They took risks. They did the unexpected. They lived daring lives. And sometimes they made mistakes. Big, Big mistakes. mistakes. Although some of their actions are disagreeable to us today, we must consider these women in the context of their own times. These women were not perfect, and yet God, in his infinite mercy, used them in his perfect plan to bring forth the Christ, the, the Savior, Savior of the world. Tamar is a woman of courage. Rahab is a woman of faith. Ruth is a woman of love. Bathsheba is a woman who received unlimited grace. Mary is a woman of obedience. These women paint us a vivid picture of just how personal and powerful God's grace is. A, a grace for all ages. Let's start at the beginning. All right, not quite at the Garden of Eden with Eve. Let's fast forward a couple hundred years. The promise of a Jewish nation is given to Abraham, then passed down to his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. 
We pick up with Jacob's 12 sons living in Canaan just before they moved to Egypt. Now, you've probably heard the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and his brother's jealousy that drove them to sell him as a slave to Egypt. Maybe you've even heard how eventually they were reunited and all was forgiven and the whole family was saved from famine. But do you know the tale of intrigue that continued to occur in Jacob's family in the meantime? The first woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy is Tamar, who had the privilege of marrying into this um, dysfunctional family. I remember... I remember being so afraid. Stories were rampant about the wickedness of Judah's sons. Perhaps my father was impressed by the bride price. Maybe he just wanted to stay in Judah's good graces. We had heard of the God of the Hebrews, a God who turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a pile of rubble underneath a storm of fire and brimstone. No Canaanite God had shown that kind of power. The alliance was made, and I had no choice but to obey my father and marry Judah's eldest son. My life with Ur was worse than I could have even imagined. But still, I longed for the security that having a son would bring for my future. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, grievously offended God, and God took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, his secondborn son, Marry your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Now, before we insert our 21st century mindsets and opinions, let's remember this story took place thousands of years ago. Times were different, to say the least, and this was a perfectly acceptable tradition. If a man died without an heir, his widow would marry the next available brother, and then their firstborn would inherit the dead man's inheritance and carry on his family line. And since Ur was the firstborn, his inheritance was double. I soon learned that Onan was different than Ur. His evil was more cunning. He knew that a son of mine would replace him as the heir to the double portion, so he refused to fulfill his obligation, yet still wanted to use me for his pleasure. What Onan did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah, rather than seeing God's punishment on his son's wickedness, blamed me for their deaths and shamed me by sending me back to my father's house. And those times, a woman once married belonged entirely to her husband's household and retained little or no standing in the family of her origin. Her only purpose was to bear sons to perpetuate the line of her husband. And if she failed, she became virtually a nobody, which explains Tamar's next actions. Judah told me he would send for me when Sheila, his third son, was old enough to marry. But the years went by and my hope waned. I knew that Judah was afraid of losing his last son to my supposed curse. <clears throat> then Judah's wife died and with her all hope for a fourth son to marry. When I realized that Judah had broken his promise to me, I became desperate. So I took off my widow's clothes 
and I disguised myself as a prostitute and sat by the road to Timnath where I knew Judah would find me. I had lived in his house long enough to know his weaknesses. When he came, as I knew he would, I insisted he give me his signet ring and staff in pledge of future payment. I cannot describe to you the mixture of joy and fear I felt when I knew I was indeed with child. When Judah learned of my harlotry, he exercised his legal right to command my execution by burning. But when I proved to him with his ring that he was the father of my child, he astounded me by saying, She has been more righteous than I. So I returned to my rightful place in Judah's household, and God gave me a double blessing, twin sons whom I named Perez and Zerah. Soon after, Judah was reconciled to his God and his father and became a spiritual leader among his brethren during the wanderings to Egypt and the famines. He even offered his own life in exchange for Benjamin's before Joseph. Tamar's actions, though insane to our modern ears, were justified and courageous in her time. Her ability to stand up for herself and her well-being put Judah to shame for his immorality and irresponsibility and altered the course of his life forever. The coward who sold his brother to Egypt then became the defender of his youngest brother. And on his deathbed, Jacob gave each of his twelve sons a blessing. Judah received the greatest one of all. The scepter would never leave his hands. From him and the sons Tamar bore him would come God's promised one, the Messiah. And there's where I find the beauty of this weird, messy story. See, I always wondered why God didn't give the line of the Messiah to Joseph. After all, he is Jacob's golden child, right? But then when I read Tamar's messy story, and I see how God used her to change Judah's life for his glory, it's like, wow, God doesn't use perfect people. There aren't any. Instead, he uses messy people with all of their messiness and their repentance to accomplish his plan. And as a fellow messy person, I sure am glad that he does. So travel with me to another messy person. Let's move past the Israelites' time in Egypt, past the wandering in the wilderness, right back into Canaan. The Israelites are on the verge of taking possession of the land God had promised them, but standing in their way is the stronghold of Jericho, home to one woman who never expected to be part of God's plan, and her name was Rahab. Now, after the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them. The tension in Jericho was so great, you could feel it in the air. And although many of my people wanted to ignore the fact that there were millions of Israelites camped right across the Jordan River, their presence was intimidating, to say the least. We had heard the stories, 
the stories of how their God had brought plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and how he had opened the Red Sea so that they could cross and how despite the fact that they had spent over 40 years in the wilderness, he provided food and water for them. How I long to know and serve such a God. And Joshua secretly sent two men to spy, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. I knew they were Hebrews the moment they walked in, so I rushed them up to the roof, and I hid them under bundles of flax, because I knew that the king's men couldn't be far behind, and I wasn't wrong. The king sent his soldiers to my house specifically to capture the spies. Somehow I managed to convince them that they had come and gone and my heart was in my throat. But I knew that for once I was doing what was right. After the soldiers left, I went back up to the roof. I knew that God had given them the land, so I pleaded with them. Swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family because I have helped you. And to my utter joy, they agreed. So I let them down over the wall using a scarlet rope, and they told me to leave it in the window so that all who remained inside would be spared from destruction. Now, it took some urging on my part to get my family to come and stay with me during the siege. But after we saw the God of Israel stop the flow of the flooding Jordan River, they were convinced. We waited in fear and then bewilderment as we watched the army of Israel march around the walls of our city once a day for six days. Enduring the jeers and taunts of the people of Jericho in silence. When were they going to attack? And then, on the last day, they made the long trek, not once, but seven times. And then that shout, that shout that I can still hear ringing in my ears and the walls crumbling all around us. My family was terrified during the carnage that followed, but I knew that God would be faithful and that the spies would come and rescue us. And sure enough, it didn't take long until they arrived and rescued us from destruction. Shockingly, this Canaanite prostitute is mentioned hundreds of years later in the book of Hebrews in the Faith Hall of Fame, alongside judges, prophets, martyrs, and patriarchs of the Jewish people. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, because she had welcomed the spies in peace. Despite the miracles that they had seen, many of my family returned to their homes outside of Jericho. But I just couldn't imagine returning to the old ways, to the old gods. So I waited outside of the Israelites' camp until I was allowed to live among them as a follower of God. And then God, in his mercy, even gave me a husband from among his people. And then he blessed us with a son that we named Boaz. And to this day, I'm amazed at his grace in allowing me, 
a woman with such a past, to become a woman to whom he had given a future. A future that would include her great-great-grandson, King David, the greatest king Israel had ever seen. And through King David, the Messiah. Isn't God's grace amazing? He took a former prostitute and worked in her heart before she even had a chance to get to know him. He turned her fear into faith and gave her the courage to act on that faith. Not only was she used to rescue the spies, but she herself was saved from certain destruction and given a place in the lineage of Christ. What gratitude she must have felt. What a legacy. And just a generation later, God brought another outsider into his chosen people, Rahab's daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, a neighbor of the Israelites. And like many neighbors, they weren't always on the best of terms. The law concerning the Moabites. No Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, to pronounce a curse on you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Now, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. I found God through the life of my mother-in-law. She endured great grief in leaving her home and moving to a strange land, and then in the death of her husband. Her sons chose to marry Orpah and me rather than to return to Bethlehem. But if that displeased her, she did not take it out on us. She taught us the ways of God and demonstrated his love to us in so many ways. When her sons died too, her only thought was to return to the land of God's blessing. She knew that the journey would be difficult and that she could offer nothing of material blessing to us in Bethlehem. So she encouraged Orpah and me to stay in Moab. My decision was already made. Orpah returned to her Moabite family, but I knew I could not go back to the old ways. I begged her, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. The trip was long and arduous, but our arrival in Bethlehem caused quite a stir. Everything about the land of Israel was foreign to me, and life as two displaced widows would not be easy. But I was determined to try my best to make up for what Naomi had lost. I asked what work I could do, and she told me of a wonderful provision in God's law. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I marveled to think that God actually thought of the poor and had a plan in place for their care. The next day, I found a barley field with some gleaners at work, and I joined them. 
The work was very hard, but I took joy in knowing that I could contribute to our small household. I was astonished when the landowner spoke to me. He knew of my situation and even of my faith in God, for he spoke of it with beautiful words. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to take refuge. He gave me food and water and a place to rest. He asked that I continue to come to his fields and promised that he would make sure that no harm came to me. What a kind man, and what a great God to lead me to his fields. Naomi was excited to hear of all my adventures, especially when I said his name was Boaz, for he was a relative of her husband's. After that, my work was easier because the reapers seemed to be getting careless and they dropped a lot of grain where I was working. It was obvious they did it on purpose. Each day, I took home all that I could carry. Like much of history, couldn't inherit land. Naomi could live on her dead husband's property, but once she died, it would transfer outside the family line, leaving Ruth penniless. Under the custom of kinsman redeemer, however, a close relative could buy back or redeem the land. Not only would he provide for the household, but if the he was not married, then he would also marry the widow, so she would not be left destitute. Boaz was a near relative of ours, with only one man closer. Neither had offered to redeem my late husband's inheritance, because that would involve marrying a foreigner. By the end of the barley harvest, Naomi was convinced that Boaz wanted to marry me. Maybe he was hesitant to ask because he was years older than I, or perhaps he had been rejected by others because of his own foreign mother. Naomi wanted me to propose to Boaz. She told me of another custom where I could approach him one night as he rested from his harvest work. My heart pounded with fear and hope as I laid down at his feet in the dark. I knew Naomi was praying, and that gave me courage. When he noticed me and asked who was there, I said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. You are my near kinsman. Will you act as my redeemer? I did not have to wait long for his reply, which brought me great joy. The Lord bless you. The kindness is greater than that which you showed me earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a virtuous woman. Boaz sent me back to Naomi with gifts. He promised to act quickly to resolve the issue of the nearer relative. He arranged a meeting with the town elders that very day and won the right to redeem the inheritance of my late husband and to marry me. The people of Bethlehem rejoiced with us in God's wondrous grace, and he soon blessed us with the gift of a son, Obed, who would be the grandfather of King David. God used Ruth's love for Naomi and Naomi's God to include her in the line of royalty, and not only that, to include her in the line of the Messiah. How unthinkable that a former enemy of God's people would enjoy his mercy and provision at all let alone experience the great honor of being in the bloodline leading to God's promised Redeemer.
But speaking of King David, though he was known as a man after God's own heart, even he didn't always make wise choices or even good choices. This next woman's life was completely upended by several of David's straight-up horrible choices. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba? The king's men came and told me that the king had summoned me. And my thoughts was in complete turmoil. Every woman in Israel admired King David and I was no exception. David gave God praises for every victory, but us women, we gave King David the praise. The flattery and the excitement that I felt having attracted the king's notice, conflicted with my loyalty with my husband, Uriah. I mean, Uriah was one of David's strong soldiers, an honorable and honest, but he was no king. Now, I do know right from wrong, and I tried to tell myself that David was the king, and when he summons you, you must come. My flesh, like his, was weak, and I gave in to that desire. The next morning, he sent me home, and I felt unclean and the ache of guilt very heavily laid upon me. A few weeks later, the fear that I felt had came to life. I was pregnant with his child. And what would he do? David sent word to Joab, his commander. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And David said to Uriah, Go to your house and rest from your long journey. Take a few days off to enjoy your home and your wife. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When he saw that his plan had failed, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then... Withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. I mourn for Uriah. I couldn't distinguish my grief from my guilt. Now I realize the extent of our sinful actions. 
David sent for me seven days after the customary grief and time and made me his wife, but his eighth wife. There were no rumors about our son's premature birth. And if there was, they never reached the ear of the king. But the Lord, but the Lord knew. And he sent Nathan to denounce David in court. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and have taken his wife to be your wife. Now, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised the Lord in this way. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. David's son, the only good thing that came out of this disaster, my son, would die. I wasn't even in court that day. I was in my chambers, and I was holding my baby, and I felt that life start draining out of him. And I was frantically going backwards and forwards to say, save my son, David. And he was praying, I heard him, and he was confessing our sins. And he was beseeching the Lord and asking him to spare our son. And he repented. And he fasted and he prayed. He did all he could do. And I was right there doing the same thing. But he died. And I said, David, David, our son is no more. It's no more. It's no more. And then David stopped praying because it was done. Our child had died, and the penalty of law of adultery is stoning to death. But God, yet in his infinite mercy, spared us. For the rest of my life, I will never forget my innocent, my innocent child, David's innocent child. Our innocent child paid the price of our sins. He paid the price for our innocent sin. Now, David did love me, and he comforted me, and God blessed us a year later with another son that I named Solomon. And a few years later, I bore three more sons. But as Nathan said, the sword 
The sword would never leave our home. It was so much franticness and ugliness and people arguing and contending for the throne. And then my own grandfather sided with Absalot, the king's son, to try to take over the throne. They were competing for the throne. But one day, I said to myself, our sons will glorify God. I was focused my sons on God's word. And David came to me and he said he had made a decision that my son, his son Absalom, I mean Solomon, <laughs> would be king. He would be king, Solomon would be king. And that was a healing. It was a healing bomb to my soul. That after all that we have done, God has showed mercy on us for everything we have done and decided to make Solomon heir. And the forgiveness and the confirmation, the restoration of the mist of all the consequences. Bathsheba's name is forever associated with David's sin of adultery. Even Matthew lists her as Uriah's wife and not by her actual name. I mean, really, she could be the original example of the Scarlet Letter. But what I see when I look at Bathsheba's story is what a gracious God did for a less than worthy woman. I see hope born from despair. And that's what I need to know because I too am a less than worthy woman and I need all of God's love and mercy to work out all of my sin and mistakes for his glory. Don't we all? We all need that divine love and grace that has no bounds. The sword never did depart from David's family. The kingdom was divided just two generations later. And over the centuries, the Israelites strayed from obedience to God and went into exile because of their disloyalty. In his grace, God continued to send prophets who urged them to repentance and told of a glorious time to come. Not only would they be returned to the land, but the perfect ruler would come. The Messiah would bring prosperity like Israel had never experienced. But first, and most importantly, God would remove all sin from their hearts and make them loyal to him forever. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. After 70 years of exile, a remnant of Israel was restored to the land. Jerusalem was rebuilt, but it wasn't the same. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, 
whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then the prophets fell silent. For 400 years, Israel waited and hoped. Some lost hope and fell into mindless adherence to human rules based on God's law. Despite this hopeless-looking situation, the embodiment of God's love was about to visit Earth, and he would make his appearance in the most surprising way of all. Growing up in Nazareth, we knew what it meant to be oppressed. Roman rule afforded us few freedoms. It wore on us. Roman taxes, I saw the way my, head, my father's head hung in shame and fear whenever a soldier came into view. And they scoffed at our ideas of worshiping just one God. And if any heard prophecies about the Messiah, they heard it as a threat to Roman power. We prayed daily for our deliverer's coming, but some doubted. What had happened to the promise of a great nation? When would God come to deliver his people? Had he forgotten Israel? I tried to have faith, but some days I just couldn't see. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who shall reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. When the angel appeared, I was greatly troubled, as anyone would be. A supernatural being was standing there right in front of me. But then he spoke with the sweetest and most terrifying voice I had ever heard. Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and will call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I was overwhelmed with the thought that God would choose me, a peasant girl from Nazareth, to bear the Messiah. But I was a virgin, only newly betrothed to Joseph. When I asked the angel, how could this happen? He replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. So the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. That promise became my strength and solace in the months and years to come. When my pregnancy became apparent, the ugly rumors began. If I had been unfaithful to Joseph, even though he was not yet my husband, I could be put to death. Even Joseph did not believe me at first, but God sent an angel to him to confirm my story. 
What love and faith Joseph demonstrated by marrying me anyway. Now both our reputations were damaged, but we knew the truth. God would protect us and the miraculous baby I carried. Nothing is impossible with God. How many times did that echo in my mind as we journeyed over 70 miles of rough Roman roads to Bethlehem? Joseph was convinced that the census was ordained of God because of Micah's prophecies about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. By the time we reached the city, the labor pains were upon me. The streets were crowded with people and every inn was full. Finally, someone took pity and pointed out an empty cave that shepherds sometimes used for their flocks. Hardly the ideal place for giving birth, but it was warm and dry, if smelly, so we settled in and I labored. Finally, Jesus was delivered. Never had I felt such love. I held in my arms the hope of Israel, the anointed one, the son of man, yet son of God. Soon, he had more admirers. A band of shepherds came talking excitedly about a message from angels announcing the Messiah. I wondered that God would choose to share this news first with such humble men. When Jesus was a little older, we were amazed by much more impressive visitors. Learned men from the East who study the heavens found our home by following a new star. It announced the birth of the King of the Jews for all the world to see. They worshipped our perfect little boy and gave gifts more expensive than anything I had ever seen. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. Joseph and I often discussed what Jesus' role in the future of Israel would be. So many things puzzled us. The angels told me that Jesus had come to rule on David's throne. Yet the angels sent to Joseph that he would save his people from their sins. Angel said to the shepherds that he would come to make peace on earth. Yet Simeon had warned me in the temple that a sword would pierce my own soul. We remembered prophecies from, the, from Isaiah about the sacrificial lamb, but how could a lamb also be a king? Thirty years went by. My dear Joseph died before we could see how God would use our special son. I often grew impatient. I had difficult lessons to learn. I knew that as God, he could do anything. 
but I had to realize that he came to do the will of his heavenly father, not to fulfill the wishes and dreams of his earthly mother. After his baptism, I did persuade him to perform his first miracle at a friend's wedding, where he turned water into wine. Jesus performed this, the first of his signs, at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The guest's astonishment was great, and his fame grew quickly as he healed the sick, made the blind to see, and fed the multitudes with a small lunch. He used the miracles to show who he was, but the people followed him for what he could do. They were offended by his message. Jesus never mentioned defeating the Roman invaders, but preached about our sin and God's love. The religious leaders chafed as Jesus described their empty rituals that had no heart for God. Even in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up and people knew his character, he was despised and rejected. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Just as God had superintended every detail of Jesus' birth so that each prophecy was fulfilled, I see now that God also orchestrated the events of Jesus' death on the cross. His sacrifice of himself was offered at the exact day and time of Passover. God himself provided the perfect lamb to atone for our sins. Pain and horror tore at my heart when Jesus was crucified. Just as Simeon said that a sword would pierce my soul. My gracious son thought of me even in his agony and placed me into the care of his beloved disciple John. In the midst of the earthquake and that awful darkness, I watched my son give his life. I was numb with pain as others attended to his burial. Three desolate days passed. After the Sabbath, several women who had followed Jesus went to the tomb to care for his body. I could not yet bear to go. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, 
He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. We passed from the depths of despair to heights of unspeakable joy. I was there in the upper room with John when Jesus appeared to us and on the mountain when he was taken back to heaven. The message as he ascended that the angel spoke to us was clear. He would return to fulfill the rest of the prophecies. He first came to pay the penalty for our sins. In time, he would return to rule on the throne of his ancestor, David. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God allowed me to play a special part in his plan for the ages. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he that is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. God chose Mary with her willing obedience to be the mother of the Messiah. She didn't always exhibit that obedience and patience, but the humanity she displays is encouraging. Like us, Mary was eagerly anticipating the second coming of her son Jesus to rule the world and remove all sin and death. She lived in a fallen world in a sinful body, and she felt the repercussions deeply. So do we. As I read through the accounts of these women and other men and women in the Bible, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, Miriam, Deborah, Martha, and Mary, Dorcas, Lydia, Paul, and Chloe, Priscilla and Aquila, Phoebe, and so many more, I can put myself in their shoes. Men and women spanning thousands of years, each living different lives, but all of them sinners just like me. All of us finding our faith, hope, courage, grace, and love in an unchanging God. A God who is working out exactly what he said he would do, despite any of our mistakes or horrible choices. And in that light, daily I find myself echoing Mary's words. 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Tremendous Bible text that our friends shared right at the end that I'd like to consider this morning as we conclude our program. It's from Genesis chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you or on your device, I'd like to read that text here real briefly and just describe for you, or define for you really, these titles, these names that are ascribed to our Savior who was born forth from the legacy of grace that was really taught to us this morning through the lives of the, really the narratives of these ladies. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God Eternal Father and Prince of Peace there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we go back up to the beginning of verse 6. For unto us a child will be born. It's a, the perfect cultural, religious, and political time. God sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. And it says here the government will rest upon his shoulders. God appointed his son to be born a baby, to die as a lamb, 
and in time to reign as a king. And that's what Isaiah is describing here. He's describing a time yet to come where Christ will reign as an ultimate ruler over all mankind in a time the Bible calls the millennial kingdom. He will have complete and total dominion. But as a king, he's also described in various ways in the text before us this morning. Now in our culture, what do we have? Um, a funeral. We have people eulogize the deceased and during their eulogies, they're often described by titles or adjectives how special the deceased was to them while they lived. In Bible times, at this particular time, those adjectives and those titles were not reserved until someone died. They were adjectives and titles that uh, people gave to respected people while they lived. And I find that fascinating culturally here because the Lord Jesus Christ is the logos of God. He's the word of God. He has no beginning and he has no end. He's eternal. And as eternal God enfleshed, died as a lamb who will reign as a king, he's ascribed these eternal adjectives and these eternal titles that he's always owned. They've always been part of his nature as divinity. And the text says here that he is wonderful. He's wonderful. Now all of these words we can consider as being superlative. There's words that we're familiar with like good, better, and best. The God of heaven and flesh in Jesus Christ is the best. He's the most wonderful. He's the most extraordinary. The Hebrew mind and ear would have heard this word or this title, wonderful, as a miracle. Jesus Christ is the miracle of God given to man, and we certainly heard how that came to be through the life of Mary, born of the Holy Spirit. He's a marvelous reality. He's most wonderful and miraculous it says here he's the counselor we know a counselor is one who gives advice and urges a certain direction to be taken and jesus christ became a man to give some eternal profound advice didn't he took three years of his life in public ministry to point people to himself i am the door I am the bread. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Among many, many other exclusive claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, he came to advise. He came to advise you and me to look to him so that he would be the author and the finisher of our faith. He's a most wonderful counselor who is mighty God. The Hebrew mind and ear would have heard this title for God or for the Lord Jesus Christ as being the universal mighty one and the, the despot, the ultimate despot of 
all creation. Now, we've seen globally rulers, both local, state, federal, and then globally, flex their muscles this year in a lot of different ways, right? Some have even proclaimed through their orders or whatever to be ultimate sovereigns over people. Think about all the different ways that leaders across our world in 2020 have flexed their muscle and combined all that muscle together. And it still pales in comparison to the divine muscle of God who is the despot of all created universe. He is the mighty God. But our Jesus is also called eternal father, the everlasting father. Without reference to other points, or units of time, Jesus is the eternal and physical, enfleshed, divine caregiver. That's how the Jewish ear would have heard this particular title. Jesus is the Father enfleshed. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I've come to care for you. He's no mere human leader that can ensure uh, your temporary care. When he says that he's the eternal father, he came not just to promise us food, clothing, and shelter. He's described here as the only one that can provide for us eternal life, not just the sustenance and the needs of physical life. He's the caregiver of the soul, if you will. Jesus himself said, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest unto your souls. No religious or political leader, no teacher in human history was ever able to provide soul rest. That claim actually got him killed, among others, because everyone knew that he was proclaiming himself to be eternal. He was God in flesh. and He was the only one indeed that could forgive men's sins. But the Bible says here that he's also the Prince of Peace. The Jewish ear would have heard this to be, again, ultimate or best commander. The highest ranking official who could offer this. Completeness, safeness, health, satisfaction, friendship, along with physical provision. That's what a peace giver does. But every one of those offerings are ultimate in nature. No spouse, no child, No patriarch or matriarch of your family tree. No human in existence. No pastor, no priest could offer the peace that the Prince of Peace offers to you. And God brought him about through a legacy and all by his grace. Many of you know that the word grace just simply means God giving us something that we don't deserve. All of these ladies received grace in a coming Christ 
or in the reality of a present Christ. They knew the grace of God in Christ Jesus, and every one of these ladies in history knew that that grace was undeserved. All of us that have known the Lord Jesus Christ know that that grace that we've received, we stand back in wonderment and we say, well, why me? I know what a sinner I am. Why did God extend that grace to me? I don't deserve that. But he gave it anyway. And now along with these ladies, you've become the legacy of God's grace in this age, if you know him. We're all on the same faith plane, if you will. And we all stand with the responsibility of proclaiming the joy of Christ in our hearts to those who are around us as these ladies did. But maybe this morning you've come and you've known a lot about Jesus. I'm sure you learned a little bit more about him today through his genealogy. But you've never had the personal relationship with him to the point where he actually changed the way you began to live. To me, that was a signature in the lives of every one of these ladies in biblical history. They had a lifestyle before Jesus. And they had a faithful lifestyle after they came to know Jesus. Jesus changes the way you live. That's the only difference between knowing him intellectually and then submitting your will to him and making him Lord of your life. He changes the way you think. Therefore, he changes the way you speak. Therefore, he changes the way you live. The miracle of God, Jesus Christ, when he saves you, performs another miracle to change the direction and the course of your life to living the character of Christ. And what completeness, what safeness, what rest to the soul because of it's eternal in nature. I hope this morning that you would only depart from here knowing for sure that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior as these ladies knew in history. Matter of fact, I would recommend to you if you came this morning with someone that you know invited you to hear about Jesus and they know Jesus and you've seen Jesus change their life, I would encourage you before you leave to say, hey, look, you've been a great example for me. I've been watching you and you're different. And I heard this morning why you're different. Would you tell me a little bit more about Jesus so that you can know him? Whether you're seated here this morning in a full auditorium or whether you're watching by live stream, reach out to the person that invited you to watch the live stream. These are wonderful words of eternal life, my friends. They're exclusive, but they're kind words. They're compassionate words pointing you to entrust your soul to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for an eternity past planning this legacy of grace. And then through us hearing the message of Christ, allowing us to be placed on that family tree, that divine family tree, which Christ is the vine and we're the branches. We've been engrafted into him. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace that's been extended to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us the opportunity to know him who is wonderful, him who is counselor, him who is mighty God, eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Lord, I know the Holy Spirit is the only one that convince, that can convince hearts to be persuaded to throw themselves at the feet of Christ, beg for forgiveness as these ladies in history did, and surrender their hearts singularly to Jesus Christ. And I pray the Holy Spirit would have his way among those this morning who need to know him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. Pastor Steve's going to come up in just a second and dismiss you. Um, I just wanted to, to publicly thank again uh, all the participants in this morning's program. Uh, Courtney Coiro is seated on the front row. Uh, unseen this morning. Um, she's a phenomenal writer, editor, um, really the, the, the content backbone to the program this morning. John Telepec, Laura Telepec's husband, um, just really spent time with each lady and the, the scripture with the men and just teaching them the, the, really the emotion behind the truth of the text. And uh, so John and Laura are quite a dynamic duo here uh, at Grace in helping us put these programs on uh, each year. And we're so thankful for, for you. Uh, to our musicians, thank you. Um, they haven't had this score of music. Folks, they've had it less than a month. And they played for 50 straight minutes. Um, is that true? A week. <laughs> okay, they've had it less than a week. And uh, that's just astounding, quite frankly. Daniel DiMarino, one of our Cleveland Institute of Music students, put the whole score together. Some of the music in there you recognized. Some of the unrecognized music you heard for the first time, he actually composed and put this whole score together. And um, so we praise God for for Daniel. Um, we had another gal, you know, that's a member of our church, Sarah Miller, a CIM student as well, a cellist. Um, she had to quarantine. Um, and we have a special friend here with us for the first time this week who found out less than a week ago as well that he would be our cellist for today. And uh, yeah, four days. Uh, folks, just four days ago. So thank you, my friend.
for, for being here and, in, and investing uh, so much in us. To our narrators, uh, they picked the perfect voices. Uh, praise God for your voices and for declaring the word to us and instructing us in the word so, so much. Um, Laura Hotchkiss, who was a member of our church years ago, her and her husband Herb were here until the Lord moved them and a job transferred in New York. Uh, she actually wrote this play, and we did it here for the first time 17 years ago. And this play has traveled around the country in different churches, proclaiming the legacy of grace through these ladies for years now. And this is, I want to publicly thank Laura for allowing us to kind of adapt this to Grace Church of Mentor. Uh, but those of you that remember Herb and Laura, we want to give them credit for that. And um, uh, tremendous work by her. There's a few other details here that I thought were really important. Okay? Um, the set is 60% from Sarah Beam's house, <laughs> our violinist. So thank you for emptying your home on the holidays for us. Um, 25% is from the Telepex living room. So thank you. The moving trucks are lining up outside to take it all back. And 15% is from Sarah Dishour's home. There are 67 plants on stage from nine different ladies in our church. So thank you. I wish you would have come and taken my wife's because <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife's got a tremendous green thumb, and, and many rooms in our home are becoming somewhat like a greenhouse, and it's beautiful. <laughs> there is one plant that she has that I really, really like this time of year. Have you ever seen a Christmas cactus? Her Christmas cactus blooms beautifully during Christmas, and it's, it's beautiful. If any of you would like it, let me know. No, he's kidding. <laughs> I got plenty of other ones. But thank you. Um, and last but not least, Pastor Steve and Nick were in the booth making sure that the live stream, the microphones, uh, everything went decently in an order. So I would like to give God uh, the praise through a round of applause for these folks allowing them to use him uh, this year. Thank you. Thank you. Pastor Steve's going to come now with some parting instructions. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you again. Look to Jesus. If this year taught you anything, get your eyes off the temporal and look to the eternal Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do it. Let's not wait. All right, love you all. Pastor Steve.